0: I've been looking at the book of Job in connection with a sermon that I hope to give this Lord's Day, but for other reasons, I decided it was best to postpone that till next Lord's Day. But as I thought about Job, there came upon my mind an interesting connection between the book of Job and the subject of libertarian free will, And this is one of those instances of the dog that didn't bark. Sometimes you can tell as much from what passages don't say as you can from what they do. These thoughts are prompted by the age-old philosophical question, who has the ultimate responsibility for evil? And as believers, we have to acknowledge that God has all power over all things because He created all things. He controls all things. He upholds all things. And so He is in the primary place of being who is responsible for all things. And all things includes good and evil and things that we would say are agnostic towards both of those categories. But consider Hebrews 1 at verse 3 where it says of Christ that He had created all things The Son has created all things. And then it says at verse 3, that He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this concept that Christ upholds all things by the word of His power means simply this, that Christ's... Word of power by which He called into existence all things from things which were not. Creation ex nihilo, if you will. It is that exceeding great sustaining power which is continuing. He is not the deist God. Neither is He the semi-deist God that controls some things but lets other things just run free. No, it says He upholds all things by the word of His power. But notice in the context, this is the context for which it then goes on to describe His great salvation. He had by Himself purged our sins. The same one with all the upholding power of His Word is the very one who died in His people's place and thereby purged their sin. And this is another argument, is it not, for the complete, total, absolute sufficiency of the death of Christ to purge His people's sin. This is from the One who made all things. The One who upholds all things. You see, nobody, no thing, no thought, no word, no deed of any of His creation can overthrow the One with all that power to uphold all things by the Word of His power. And therefore, there is no way anyone can overturn His purging of our sins by Himself. Notice that this text is in the context of Christ as the Creator. And it is an ongoing power. He upholds all things by the Word of His power. And then in Acts chapter 17, Paul is addressing the Athenian philosopher set where he says, in Him, that is in the Son, we live and we move and we have our being. Now here is a statement of astounding beauty, that it is in Christ that we live, that we have life, that we even exist, that we have our being. But it's also in Christ that we move. You see, it is only in the sustaining power of Christ over all the creation that we can even act in any way, that we can even exist or act only by His Powerful word. And the truth of the matter is that if the Lord Jesus were to withdraw that word as to any person, creature, power, authority, why, they would cease to exist. They would evanesce. They would disappear in a puff. And if you study quantum physics and particle physics and so forth, you realize the great mystery of what it is that all these things consist of and what causes them to knit together and to continue on in their characters and forms and forces. And the answer is it's the sustaining Word of power of the Lord Jesus. In Him we live and move and have our being. And then, of course, finally, Colossians chapter 1 at verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things and by Him all things consist. And notice again the context of the salvation of His people by His bloodshedding. That it is the bloodshedding of the incarnate Son who has all this absolute, total, infinite power over the things that He made. They were made by Him. They were made for Him. And by Him all things consist. That is, have their existence and being in Christ and in none other. Now this is not some foolish pantheism. Not at all. But it is the fact that without the power of Christ, upholding all things, controlling all things, sustaining all things, then there would be nothing. And it was that one who gave his life a ransom for his people's sins. To modern man, this is very unacceptable. This is all wrong. I'm not talking about the atheists. I'm talking about the Christians who are very, very perplexed by what position this puts God in with regard to evil. Because if God upholds all things, controls all things, if God ordains all things, why, that just can't be. There's got to be some fault or some basis on which we can charge wicked men with evil and absolve God. And of course, it is true that wicked men are responsible for much of the evil. Some of it's just natural. The tornadoes and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the forest fires, those things destroy the creation. Who's responsible for them? But to modern man, all this is wrong. It implicates God in evil, they think. Well, if God hadn't made us, then we wouldn't be evil, would we? So there is, even for them, the inescapable implication of God in all things that exist. Therefore, he must be touched by some evil. He must be at some point a cause of evil, a fundamental cause of it. He's the fundamental cause of everything. So they construct this elaborate philosophical contraption of libertarian free will in which they postulate that God has cut mankind loose from His control and His responsibility in the sense that Everyone's given the power to make their own free choices and God stands by and watches them do it. If you think about that for about 10 seconds, you'll realize that doesn't solve anything at all. Because God could always stop them if He wanted to. He has the power. According to these people, He's just a voyeur. He stands there and watches what evil people do and doesn't stop them on a host of occasions when He Perfectly well could, and in our society, if a man does that, why he has some culpable responsibility for not lending a hand, doesn't he? At least morally, we blame a man who doesn't step in and try to stop a wickedness that he has the power to stop. And we pride ourselves when we do take those steps and why we exhort the world that they need to do something to stop Putin and they need to do something to stop This or that. But here God, with all the power, they think their little contraption that they've dreamed up somehow absolves Him of being in any way responsible for anything that they don't want Him to be responsible for. So the libertarian free will theory says that we cause all of our choices and we're the original cause. There's no cause behind what we cause. We do it all on our own. And so God's cut loose. You see, He's severed. The connectivity is severed in their mind. Contrary to all those texts we just read where God is never severed from His creation. He upholds it. He sustains it. It consists in Him. So we become the primary cause. God has somehow cut us loose from His upholding and sustaining power So that we decide on our own the things that we will do. We have libertarian free will. God stands by and watches us. The whole concept of libertarian free will sounds good because we all have a sense that we have free will, don't we? But in reality, what we do is we do what we like. We do what we want to do. But we don't get to decide what we want to do. In other words, I like Rocky Road ice cream and therefore I might eat some if I get a chance, but I didn't decide to like Rocky Road ice cream. The whole idea of free will stops once you start looking at the cause of why you liked this or that. Why you were prepositioned to make a decision to do this or that. Why do we like our sin? Did we decide to like our sin? Can anybody remember when they were an infant and decided, I believe I'll start telling lies. I think I want to. I think that it's a good strategy. Blah, 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 blah. No, it's sort of built into us, isn't it? That's what we call the fall. And we call original sin and total depravity. But you see, libertarian free will people, they don't believe in all that. They've ditched all of those ancient doctrines of the Christian church. Paul, of course, rebuts the objection that God's purposes worked out in what He ordains us to do or not to do somehow absolve us of any blame for our sin. The libertarian free will people say, well, if you don't have libertarian free will, you can't be responsible for the sins you commit. They like to flatten things out and say, well, God just made you sin. You know, that's totally naive and facile objection. It's a whole lot more complicated than that. But it is true if God hadn't wanted you to sin, He could have just ordained you never to be born, couldn't He? So these people think that Without their libertarian free will, they won't be liable for their sin. And of course, Paul directly confronts that false notion in Romans 9 at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So if when God shows mercy on a sinner, it's not because the sinner wanted it or sought it out or somehow compelled God. It's because God decided to show mercy. And previous to verse 14, he's pointed out that God said, I love Jacob and I hate Esau before Esau was ever born or had ever done anything wrong. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. He's referring back to the teaching of Moses in Exodus, where God says, Tell Pharaoh to let the people go, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let them go, so that I can show my mighty power in his rebellion. Well, that did not seem fair, does it? So see, his libertarian free will was overridden by the hardening of God of his heart. God has a reason why sinners continue to sin. It's not because they have no liability or blame. It's because God is working out His purposes even in their evil, showing His mighty power. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? The objector says, well, if God ordained that I should commit the sin, then how can he hold me accountable? How can he lay any blame on me? I haven't even resisted his will. And some of these libertarian free will people actually say that if God ordains a certain evil act for His own purposes, then that means when you commit that act, you're obeying God. That's what they say. Because they don't understand that God's commandment is what we are to obey. We don't know what His design is or His ordination is or His eternal decree is. All we know is what He commands us to do. That's what we're liable for. That's what we're accountable for. The explicit commandments of God. But you see, these people say that, well, if God ordained that Pharaoh should not let the people go, he was being obedient to God's will. No, he wasn't. The commandment was, let my people go. That's what Pharaoh disobeyed. And the people who say that Pharaoh shouldn't be held blameworthy for that because he had no choice, did he? Paul says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou to reply against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? God has a right to hold us liable and blameworthy for violating His commandments, even if in so doing we accomplished His will. God's basic position on this is that I'm the creator. I can do whatever I will and still hold you blameworthy when you disobey my commandments. And this is what rankles the advocates of libertarian free will. They pretend this makes God unfair. I was thinking about Job, the book of Job, and this foolish notion of libertarian free will. You remember Satan mocked Job's uprightness before God at Job chapter 1 at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, said from going to and fro the earth, and from walking up and down in it the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? But there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man, an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face." The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So here is Satan mocking Job's uprightness and claiming that the only reason Job worships God is because God's blessed him so much. So God tells the devil, Well, go ahead, give it a shot. So the devil brought destruction to Job. He destroyed all of his crops all of his animals all of his servants all of his children all in one day and look at what job says in response to that he's bereft of course at verse 22 then job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down to the ground and worshiped and said naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither the lord gave and the lord hath taken away blessed the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not or charged God foolishly. Have you ever noticed that he ascribed all this evil that befell him as being the Lord's work? The Lord hath taken away. He didn't get all wrapped up into an analysis of the evil doers and their evil deeds and those evil Sabaeans and those evil Chaldeans and those evil people that pillaged and burned and stole all of his servants and all of his possessions. Well, they were very wicked people and they had done very evil deeds. But Job ascribed this to God's hand, didn't he? And it then says that this was not a sin, what Job said, and he didn't charge God foolishly. So from this we learn that when all of this evil was done, at the decree of God, that God is the one that did it, ultimately. And to say that is no crime, is no sin. That God vindicates Job's conclusion that all of this evil that befell him was from the hand of God. Job believed that ultimately all things are from the hand of God. And throughout the rest of the book of Job, He never questions that it's God that brought all of this disaster upon him. The actors are liable for their crimes and yet it is ultimately God's act at the root of it. And then of course things get worse. Job chapter 2, Satan goes back to the presence of the Lord and the Lord taunts him about how Job hadn't turned against his God. He's still worshiping me and He hasn't charged me foolishly. And the devil says, well, (laughs) Ah, yeah, but if you touch him personally, if you touch his body, he'll curse you. So God says, have at it. So he comes down and he puts Job in a terrible calamity of a plague in his flesh, boils that are so painful that he scrapes them with a broken piece of pottery and gets no relief, and then his wife tells him to just curse God and die. That was another blessing, wasn't it? And then at verse 10, we read this. After his wife tells him to curse God and die, he saith unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. So once again, Job is clear that he received evil from God through the agency of all of these other people and all these other circumstances. And Job says there's nothing wrong with that. If God chooses to do that, He's God. He's sovereign. He can do whatever it is He likes. And notice one of the things that God says to the devil in confirmation of this, that Job continues to fear Him and eschew evil At verse 3, And still Job holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. See, even God takes credit for the destruction of Job. And God acknowledges to the devil that there's no reason in Job that he should have done that. God doesn't blame the devil for what the devil orchestrated at God's permission. He doesn't blame the Chaldeans or the Sabaeans or the raiders from whatever other tribes came and did all that. He did not blame them at all. Job makes it clear that he agrees that this evil is from the hand of God. And then his three friends show up. And at verse 11, we read of their introduction. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, every one, from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every man his mantle, sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spoke a word unto him. For they saw that his grief was very great." but they can't keep their mouths shut for very long. Eliphaz starts to help out Job chapter 4 at verse 1 where he says this, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed me. Thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholded him that was falling. And thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it has come upon thee and thou faintest it toucheth thee and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. See, Eliphaz is saying, you've been a big counselor for people who were oppressed, but now... When you're oppressed, what can we say? The innocent are never never put down. It's only the unrighteous that are punished. And so he elaborates on this throughout the next 33 chapters of the book of Job, explaining to Job and his two other friends, explaining to Job that this is all somehow Job's fault. Job has done something wrong. There's some unconfessed sin that he needs to repent of Because God has punished him for it. God did this to you as judgment for some unrighteousness in you. Go ahead and spit it out and be reconciled to God. That's their comfort. And of course, this is a common idea even in today's so-called churches that you wouldn't be sick or you wouldn't be poor or you wouldn't be in trouble if you had enough faith or if you hadn't sinned. So what you need to do stop sitting, believe God, and then everything will be fine. This is the sort of false doctrine that is promulgated. And that's what these friends of his, they didn't have any other explanation other than that Job must have sinned. But notice, they never questioned that God did this to Job, that God was responsible. You know, they didn't dilate upon those evil Sabaeans and those wicked Chaldeans. Somebody ought to go over there and do something about that. No, they didn't. They never questioned that it was at God's hand. And then Job contests their accusation and asserts that he has done no evil to deserve this wrath from God. And he questions why God has done this to him. And this goes on, chapter after chapter after chapter. And we ought to note again, nobody suggests that this great evil and sin done to Job are not from God's hand. Not his friends, not Job, and not God. All affirm that God did this. God's responsible for this. They don't even take refuge in the actors who did these things, personal culpability. They focus on the question of God. Why He did it. What was His purpose? Had Job sinned? Had Job not sinned? So what we can draw from this is that nobody believed in libertarian free will as an explanation of how God isn't ultimately responsible for all these things. All things good and bad. And ask you to ponder this. Can you imagine the beatdown that would have taken place had anybody popped up? and propose the libertarian free will philosophy to explain that God didn't want any of this to happen. He really didn't. But that He just allows free men to just do whatever they want to. And He's not responsible in any way for what they do. Can you imagine the response that that person would have gotten from all the parties? Job, the free friends, the other fourth friend, and from God Himself, if anybody had come along and tried to argue that position. God answers Job and his friends and takes the credit for all of creation, takes the credit for everything that happens, even the common ordinary processes that we take for granted, like how the birds fly and how the animals feed their young and all all that. That's all God doing that, He says. He does everything. He's responsible for everything. He's the cause of everything. He ordains everything. He has all power. He is all prudence and judgment in the things He decides will take place. At Job 38, at verse 1, God first speaks to Job and his friends. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. understand it. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors? When it brake forth as if it had issued out of the womb. When I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick darkness a swaddling man for it and break up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Well hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and calls of the day spring to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and that the wicked might be shaken out of it. So God starts at the very beginning and works his way forward till finally he concludes that he is the cause and sustainer of all things and all things that are done to accomplish his purposes. You see, this is just like what Paul said in Romans 9. Who are you to reply against God? You don't even have standing to ask these questions, much less to point any finger of blame at God as if he's done something improper in all of this. Notice God doesn't ever say, well, actually, I wasn't behind this recent uprising against you, Job. That was those other people. That was the devil that did that. No, God never raises that as a defense at all. He says, I do all things. I have all power. I'm behind all of the creation and all of its functioning and all of its works. And who are you to question me about any of these things? Now, at the end, Job has learned his lesson. He has made demands upon God for explanations, but God's reply is that He doesn't have the right to judge God or demand an explanation for anything. And at Job 40, at verse 1, we read of this transformation. However, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him, he that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice. But I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins, now like a man. I will demand of thee, declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like Him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. You see, God is once again underscoring that nobody, no creature, can change God's judgment or say it's unjust, that nobody can condemn God so that they might be declared righteous. The exact same thing that the interlocutor in Romans 9 tried to do. He tried to blame God for his sin and then announced that he couldn't be responsible for his sin because all he did was what God ordained. God is saying here, you can't condemn me for anything, even so that you might yourself be declared righteous. And finally, when all the lessons have been learned and Satan has been humiliated and God has been vindicated by Himself, not by Job, not by his questioners or friends, vindicated by Himself, we read in Job 42 at verse 10 these words. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. You see, after all of that, the text makes it clear that it was true that this was the evil that God had brought upon Job. No question about it being ultimately the evil brought on him by other people or by the devil. No. In the end, the Almighty God had brought this evil upon Job, just like He had also brought him vindication and rescue They comforted Him over all the evil that the Lord brought upon Him. The whole book of Job is a refutation of the facile and foolish philosophy of libertarian free will as an adequate explanation of the problem of evil. It's an attempt to cut God loose from His creation, to deny that He upholds all things by the word of His power To deny that he is in control and ordains all things according to his purposes and he's not subject to cross-questioning about it and he's not subject to having the moral blame shift onto himself, shifted onto himself for all the crimes that his creatures commit. Meanwhile, our God rules everywhere, over all things, over all powers and authorities forever. And if He hadn't ruled over our sinful hearts, we'd have never come to Jesus either. And this is the thing, you see. It cuts both ways. You can blame God for the crimes you commit and you'll be wrong. And you can blame God for the salvation that He works in the hearts of His people that He loves and you'll be right. But where you'll be wrong is if you take credit for it yourself. Take credit for your own salvation. Take credit for your own faith. Take credit for your own obedience by the Spirit to the Word of God which He works in us by His power to redeem us. For He will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy and whom He pardoneth. He pardoneth. And that's the end of it. We're reminded of Christ's parable about the guests at the feast. You remember the man put on a great feast, the rich and powerful man put on a great feast, and he started calling all of his friends to come, and none of them would come. They all had an excuse. I have bought a new field, and I have to go look at it, or I have married a wife, and I cannot come. I think that's funny. She probably won't let him. I have a job to go take care of, so I won't be able to come. May I be excused? And you remember what Christ ends up saying. None of them would come according to their own so-called free will, would they? So the Master sends out servants to compel them to come in, to find some people and bring them to His feast that it might be furnished with guests. And this doesn't mean that God tells us we could use violence or force to bring people into the kingdom. doesn't matter what Augustine said it means. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that God does the compelling. He's the one that ordains who will believe and who He will have mercy on and whom He will rescue. It's not in ourselves. It's not our own decision. It's His ultimately. Of course, we decide to do it because God changes our heart to make us want to. To make us want to believe and to come to Christ. And so the Master sends out those servants to compel them to come in. So God sends out His Holy Spirit to compel His people to come to Christ. you remember what Jesus said in John 6? No man can come to Me except the Father which sent Me draws Him unto Me and I will raise Him up at the last day. You know, we love the words of that hymn that Isaac Watts wrote. With joyful hearts we raise our song as those who have been blessed. Each one thus cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why am I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice? And enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And so it is that God has had mercy on us. God has been gracious to us. God has drawn sinful, rebellious people into Himself, caused us to trust in Jesus, and Jesus has saved us by His blood shedding for us on the cross at Calvary. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table, for the great work that it points us to as a celebration, as a picture, as a reminder as to what great cost the Lord paid to save His people from their sins. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed and make atonement for our sin. O oh God, our Father, we come to You rejoicing in the mighty work of Your Son to save us from our sin. We thank You that He shed His precious blood on Calvary's tree to take it away to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank You that in the Lord Jesus was found a suitable Lamb that could save, that could redeem, when no other Lamb would do. We thank You that You have not depended upon Your people in any way to bring about our own salvation. And you have not depended upon us to motivate ourselves or to make our free will decisions and so forth, as the world sees it, as false teachers see it. But rather you have changed our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and you have brought your people unto yourself by your own will, by your own design, and not by ours. And we thank you that our salvation didn't depend on our will or on our breeding, or on our patrimony. Rather, it depends upon Your great love and Your mercy and Your power exercised on us and in us. We thank You for this cup that Christ left us to remind us of the way in which He purged us of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number five in the black book. Behold what love, what boundless love the Father hath bestowed. On sinners lost that we should be now called the sons of God. Behold what manner of love. What manner of love. Number five.